This is Joya Italiano. This is Jeff Ekman. And welcome to Oh, That's a Thing, a podcast about the real science and sci-fi movies. Even if you haven't seen the movie, don't worry. We use the movies as jumping off points for some pretty awesome and real topics. That's right. We're not experts at all. We're actually just a couple of goons who Googled some stuff. But this stuff is pretty cool. Yeah, so sit back, relax, maybe learn a thing or two. Here we go. Here we go. Something in the, in the clouds. Oh, I... <laughs> is it partly cloudy today in that atlas? <laughs> I was like... How do I make a pun out of this? I'm not sure. We watched the movie Cloud Atlas. Cloud Atlas. From 2012, one of the most expensive independent films ever made. Oh, is it an independent film? Yeah, they financed it privately, and it was like $128 million. Wow, super epic. Giant, sprawling film. Big yeah. attempt at something that is very difficult to pull off. Let's take a listen to the trailer. Let's do it. That's it. The music from my dream. There are whole movements I wrote imagining us meeting again and again in different lives, in different ages. Yesterday, my life was headed in one direction. Today, it is headed in another. You ever think the universe was against you? Fear. <laughs> Belief. Love. Phenomena that determine the course of our lives. These forces begin long before we are born and continue after we perish. Our lives are not our own. We are bound to others, past and present. And by each crime and every kindness, I believe there is another world waiting for us, a better world, and I'll be waiting for you there. Wow. (laughs) What an epic. (laughs) Yeah. This is a movie that I think, the first time I saw it in the theater, I really enjoyed it, Mm -hmm. but the more I watched it and the more I thought about it, the more I loved it. Mm -hmm. But I absolutely understand why many people's reaction to this movie was, what the fuck, what are you thinking? Yeah. I well, what the hell? I, I didn't see it because of that, like because that's what I had heard about it. So right. I'm like, I don't need to go out of my way. But I mean, this is the kind of thing where you could absolutely see how fantastic it is as like a story, right. and whether or not you agree that it should have been adapted or that it could have been done differently or whatever, that's mm-hmm. fine. But still, the story is really interesting. It's an exploration of how the actions of individual lives impact one another in the past, present, and future. Right. Tagline is everything is connected. So this is one where I mean, I will absolutely get to my beefs about this movie right. in a second. But like, you know. Let's we can own up to the fact that it's a complicated and not easily attainable goal. I yeah, think, it's telling movie. six different stories in six different timelines, and it's taking on one of those ideas about like what you what art can say about humanity that's yeah. so grandiose that it, you know does it always achieve its high mm-hmm. ad- intentions? We, yeah, or we're, whereas because this is the from the directors of the Ma- Matrix trilogy, right. so it's like where that is heady in a way that's just that was still like mass appeal. Mm-hmm. This isn't that. I think it's which is it's, why I think it had to be right. independently made. I completely agree. <laughs> so apparently in 2005, Natalie Portman gave a copy of the original novel to Lana Wachowski while they were on the set of V for Vendetta in right. London, and then a year later, both of the Wachowskis wrote the first draft of the screenplay and. Now Natalie Portman was actually promised the role of Sony 451. The, oh, interesting. The, like, android the robot or whatever mm-hmm. but she had to turn it down because she got pregnant so interesting she but she's given a special thanks in the closing credits well cool. <laughs> that's great yeah it was very polarizing movie mm-hmm. 
and it almost kept falling apart because of a lack of funding and stuff. But I guess like Tom Hanks was believing in this movie so much, like from early on. From early on, he was so committed and so wanted to do this movie that I guess like there was this situation (laughs) where all of the actors were like supposed to get on airplanes, and all their agents were saying like they don't have the money, don't get on the plane. And Tom Hanks was like, "Fuck it, I'm getting on the plane." Oh wow! And then everybody else was like, "Wait, Tom's on the plane? Oh well, I should let's all get going." And like then the movie got made. Oh, that's interesting. Well, yeah, because I don't, I don't know much about the making of this except for that it's one of the few films in history that has three different directors working as a team that got like equal parts of the credit. Right, which was I think a really difficult thing for them to do with the Directors Guild. Yeah. But the the third director, other than the two Wachowskis, uh, is Tom. Is it Wachowski? Tickver. My bad. I, I don't know if it's Wachowski or Wachowski. Okay. I've always said Wachowski, okay, okay. but I don't. You could be totally right. <laughs> okay. Tom Tickver, as it is pronounced, even though it's spelled T-Y-K-W-E-R. Right, Tickver. He directed Run, Lola, Run and a bunch of other great movies. Mm-hmm. And the three of them got together and every scene, every shot in the movie was pre-planned by the three of them together. Mm-hmm. But the actual shooting was done separately where the Wachowskis directed the 19th century story and the two that were set in the future and Tom Tickver directed the stories that were set in the 1930s the 70s and 2012 yeah I had read that Tom Tickver was a friend of the Wachowskis mm-hmm. and so he was like invited to co-author one of the subsequent drafts mm-hmm. while also keeping in mind the author's point of view David right. Mitchell or whatever but yeah that was fascinating to me to know that it's like two completely like parallel filming units that mm-hmm. there was no shared crew except for the cast right and like honestly all that considered it's remarkably well put, put together. together yeah well i think they did a lot of work in the editing process to cut between these stories in ways where there was a connection in the cut whether it was a line of dialogue relating to an image that you then saw when it cut to a different timeline mm-hmm. or it was like some kind of visual connection or like they just discovered this was the right moment to flip back yeah. to this and and how to connect them and make them feel connected in ways that you're not necessarily aware of certainly not aware of the first time through watching right well, well I mean that's a really good point because I, I mean I especially now after seeing it I'm like this is not the type of movie that you just see once and appreciate because Mm -hmm. the biggest criticism about this movie that I read and certainly my biggest issue is what I feel to be an ambitious but wholly misguided decision to cast the same actors as multiple characters Mm. throughout and the idea is interesting because they kind of explore the idea of reincarnation and like whether or not it's the same exact souls living or whatever it's like it was a choice to make it not be separate characters and, and to be able to find that continuity or whatever definitely but You know, and I also appreciate, before I criticize, I appreciate that the directors reportedly told the actors to think of their roles as a quote-unquote genetic strain with Mm. actors in one storyline affecting another as opposed to a series of individual parts. Right, So it's not like, this is your soul and you're the same person just Mm -hmm. with different stupid makeup. It's like, I just appreciated the genetic strain aspect of it. That's a cool idea. But, like... Having Halle Berry in whiteface playing a 30s debutante or like Hugh Grant as like a warrior in war paint and Mm -hmm. shit. It's like, to me, it's at best campy and at worst, some people, some people, I read a lot of reports about like yellow face issues and stuff, Yeah, yeah. which to me is like totally missing the point. I would never accuse this movie of like being racist, right? but it kind of forces you to miss the point because Mm -hmm. you're watching a giant screen with really iconic faces with outrageously cartoonish prosthetics on her face. Right. And in that way, the more times you watch it, the less jarring 
jarring that is right. when it's shown to you. And so you're able to like see the movie for what it's intended to be. Yeah. But I can't disagree with that. And there's a lot of choices that they made that are really specific and unique choices that I just don't agree with. Yeah. And I mean, and I had the conversation with myself of just sort of like, well, I mean, how would you have done it? Either way, there's going to be some kind of confusion, whether it's like there's because they have the sharing of the birthmarks mm-hmm. and stuff for some sort of signifying mark. But it's like they made a choice. And to me, I don't think it worked. And I think that it, it's kind of an unfair position to put your audience in. Right, right. But, you know, the same issue that we had with Looper. It's like Looper's a great movie. And once you see past it, it's fine. But at first, when you're seeing this absurd, like the forehead, we, makeup. yeah, we know what Bruce Willis looks like. Right. I certainly know what Tom Hanks face looks like more than anybody. Yeah, in the exactly. World. Yeah, no, I totally know what you mean. <laughs> so but, that's it. But, you know, oh, oh, God, when he's like a cockney gold chain wearing. Like, everybody has a problem, reasonably <laughs> so, with his cockney accent. Tom Hanks has a severe cockney accent as one of the characters that he plays. But it's yeah. also like Hugo weaving in the future with like a top hat is going like slithering and slamming right, his way. Right. And it's just kind of over the top in a way that I felt didn't add yeah. to it. Well, I mean, it, like, just talk about uncanny valley it's like i consider myself open-minded but i'm like you're making a non-caucasian person wear caucasian contacts it's It's, weird it is really weird but that's i just like obviously have to get that out of the way but overall like concept you know provoking thoughts wise i mean Mm -hmm. this movie is is great yeah and like one more thing about it's better on the second and third viewing is that you don't know what connections to look for the first time through until towards the end of the movie you're connecting some of them but there's certain images that you know are important later in the movie that on the second viewing you're like oh my god right they're connecting it in that meaningful way and there's just the more you unpack the more that there is Mm -hmm. and for a minute I just want to have this conceptual discussion with you about the movie because I know there's probably going to be a lot of parts of this that are just like high thoughts Mm -hmm. thoughts when you're high where you're like (laughs) right and we're all connected right right? and like oh my god but like who cares for a second (laughs) I want to talk about it because the movie illustrates like the closest thing that I personally have to a religion, mm-hmm. which is it's a reminder of the ways in which the choices that we make, both large and small, directly and indirectly affect others. Mm-hmm. And in a universe where we're so small and actually insignificant, this shows through stories that I find compelling in their own right, mm-hmm. some more compelling than others out of these six stories, mm-hmm. th- why we are not insignificant mm-hmm. in the I, face I, of I all that. Saying. Yeah. And it's deeper than just the butterfly effect. It's like how our lives can truly have meaning beyond just our lives. And another thing that this is trying to say is that every era of humanity has its own unique moral and ethical challenges. Mm -hmm. And how we face those matters for the people who are directly affected by them, you know, whether it's like the issues of today, Mm -hmm. the stuff that we're facing on the horizon with stuff that Trump is doing. Mm -hmm. It's like how we handle them will affect how we handle the next era's dilemma. Right, right, right. Yeah, we were talking about that before, which again, like, seems so intuitive, Mm -hmm. but also, like, you kind of need to be reminded. Right. And, like, all of these dilemmas, whether it was, like, how we've handled gay marriage in the Mm -hmm. past and Mm -hmm. where we're at now, it's, like, these, they do kind of stack on each other. Right. And each one is, like, the next era's dilemma in that, like, we've now solved, kind of, Mm -hmm. this thing that came before. So... I don't think that we're ever going to be truly done with these generational dilemmas, but maybe we will one day get close. Because I I do think it's possible that we'll learn how to defeat all diseases and achieve immortality, potentially. Like, we've talked about that on this show a lot, where 
something close to immortality, not like you can always get hit by a bus or something like Mm -hmm. that, but like we may defeat cancer and what's beyond that, I don't know. I both agree with you, but then I'm also more fascinated by each new step in human evolution of like how we're just fucking each other over. That's the thing where it's like we go back to this idea over and over again of long-term optimism and short-term pessimism Mm -hmm. because like we may eventually rise above those inherent human issues that are like the bad parts that we inherited through evolution. Mm -hmm. And we're evolving to the point where we can get to choose the parts of our nature that we want to carry forward and deny certain instincts that have been embedded in us until society can reach this point where we decide, oh, wait a minute, that is an inherent nature of our own that we don't like. Now, is that disease-based or like... The reason I brought in the idea of disease-based is like, I'm thinking that this is society working out the societal issues. I I think that disease is a good analogy for it. Like, Mm -hmm. it's totally separate from that. But in the way that we've made progress in disease and eventually overcome a Mm -hmm. lot of it, and we may even see on the horizon the fact that we may finish off diseases, Mm -hmm. we are hitting time after time, new social issues and figuring out how to handle those. And then those are in our past and we take on the next major social issue. And as we go up this ladder, is there an end to it where we actually can understand ourselves and make the right choices Uh almost inherently? Okay. And so I think of it like it's a form of intelligent design that's actually coming into effect only now because we're intelligently choosing the design of our future. Right. I mean, it's interesting that you did use the disease context because Mm -hmm. to me, I'm like, we've also talked a million times about how then we create new bugs and like, because... Yeah. We've also talked about equilibrium and how like symbiosis has to happen. And so I don't I honestly don't believe there's ever going to be a time where we eradicate like all disease because I think evolution is going to come up with a new way. A new But disease, totally yeah. when it comes to things that are, you know, when it comes to policy decisions, which mm-hmm. are all just based on ideas, like right. I would like to get to the point, And that is a very long term optimist kind of point where like. <laughs> Maybe we can truly be enlightened. Yeah. I just, I don't know. That's what I'm thinking where I'm like, we're in this, we're in the shit right now. Yeah, yeah. And we're trying to figure it all out. But mm-hmm. like in the way that we do continue on and we're like some diseases have been eradicated and we move on to the next one. Mm-hmm. There are social diseases and yeah. issues that we've brought along from evolution that we're trying to understand in yeah, that kind of a way. That's interesting. And we may get somewhere really good eventually. <laughs> Hopefully. I don't know. Right. So as I was saying before, this movie deals a lot with the concept of reincarnation. And That's right. yeah, this is this is also called transmigration or metempsychosis. So the major Western religions like Christianity, Judaism and Islam, they conceive of time linearly where life is just a step that determines the quality of an afterlife. But with reincarnation, which is widely accepted by the major Eastern religions like Hinduism and Buddhism, the concept is that the soul is reborn into new lives. So starting with Hindu, Hindu is the oldest surviving religion, and it's super complex and varied. There's like an array of gods and traditions and whatnot, mm-hmm. but it's generally unified by an acceptance of something called samsara. Samsara? Not sure. <laughs> what that means, a chain of births and deaths linked by reincarnation. So what controls samsara is the law of karma. So Hindus believe that all individuals accumulate karma over the course of a lifetime 
good actions equal good karma, bad actions equal bad karma. Mm -hmm. And karma is passed down through subsequent lives. And apparently good karma can eventually earn a person a higher place in the caste system in the future. Right. So already we're kind of realizing this man-made system, the caste Mm -hmm. system, that is then (laughs) justified through religion and sort of it's like this self-fulfilling prophecy because it's like, y'all created this idea that there's like untouchables and then like like hierarchies of people. But if you're a good person as an untouchable, then you will be reborn in the next layer up right, and your life be will be slightly better and if you're, and you're, if you're good life. there yeah. then you can move up to the next one right it's a way to keep people working and, yeah. and subservient mm-hmm. <laughs> it is anyway but of the ultimate goal for a Hindu is moksha which is salvation from samsara so ironically to achieve moksha you have to make a deliberate effort to not want it so salvation only comes after a person has abandoned all pursuits and desires and accepts that the individual soul is the same as Brahman or the universal soul or God so by exiting the cycle of reincarnation an individual no longer endures the pain and suffering of earthly existence performed countless times over because for Hindus life's a bitch and then you don't die (laughs) so and that's the first thing that I want to stop with is because I didn't realize that the true end goal for this too was to end the cycle of reincarnation anyway like generally in just my life when people talk about reincarnation they always say it is sort of like yeah I believe like in my past life I was a scoodly dude like it's always they don't it doesn't have the attitude of like and this is something I need to stop fucking cycle those are people who probably didn't grow up with it as like a part of the caste system where it's like reincarnation is just like this fun idea where like maybe in my past life I did this but like in the caste system, it's like there's you can be reborn as like the highest level of caste, right. but then you're trying to reach the next level up, which I've heard referred to as nirvana. That's in Buddhism. Okay. Yeah. I can get these confused sometimes. <laughs> well, I'll talk about it in a second. Yeah, They're very yeah. similar. Buddhism mm. came after Hindu. They incorporated. It's okay. almost like religions repeat the same idea over and over again, mm. and we act like they're new. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. So quick fun fact. In November 2007, there was a two-year-old Indian girl who'd been born with four arms and four legs because as a fetus, she'd absorbed her non-developing twin oh. and took on its appendages and kidneys and stuff. So some villagers believed that she was a reincarnation of the four-armed Hindu goddess of prosperity, Lakshmi, whom the child was named after. Oh. Now, no, but to your point, when Buddhism was established 2,500 years ago, it incorporated the Hindu belief in reincarnation. So Buddhism, again, it's kind of complicated. There's two major subdivisions and a ton of different variations based on regional practices. But most of them also believe in samsara or the cycle of rebirth. There's the periods after death and before rebirth that's sometimes called the in-between or just the the between, rather. Mm-hmm. Also in Buddhism, samsara is governed by the law of karma. They believe that the soul's karma transmigrates between bodies and becomes a germ of consciousness in the womb. And mm-hmm. also for them, this they see unenlightened samsara as a state of suffering. And b- basically, we suffer because we we desire the transient. We You can't take it with you, and we're all right. focused on that. Right. So only when we achieve this state of total passiveness and free ourselves from desire are we actually able to escape the cycle of rebirth and death and achieve nirvana Hmm. or salvation so yeah i mean well first of all i find i find the overlap fascinating i guess i didn't realize how many similarities there were between hindu and buddhism but what i love about this is how many aspects of religion are just trying to get people to be like just be good people totally be good people to each other just don't be obsessed with money and wealth and And it's like finding reasons that are like beyond your literal life for why you should act that way yeah and you know if you need that, then 
it's a good thing to have it around. Well, yeah, but I mean, your point is totally valid. I mean, even with like Christianity, it's very like thou shalt not kill. Right. You're like, great. The Ten Commandments, even though some of them are weird, are <laughs> right. mostly about like, don't be a bad person. Kill, lie, steal, don't do it. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because the directives of something called the Eightfold Path, which many Buddhists believe that you can follow to end, to end this cycle of okay. reincarnation, the directives are correct view, correct intention, correct speech, correct action, correct livelihood, correct effort, correct mindfulness, and correct concentration. So I'm like, again, are, those to me seem a little bit subjective, though, too. Yeah, <laughs> like, well, what's what the definition correct? of correct? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But again, like what you're saying, it's it's all generally speaking, like we have a somewhat agreed upon way to be a good person in the world. And but again, it's such a societal and cultural tell of, w- of what those things mean. Right. Now, I was also reading about some early Greco-Roman mystery religions, as they're called. These sometimes transformed into social clubs or fraternities, essentially. But they espoused a range of reincarnation ceremonies and beliefs that eventually influenced the philosophy of folks like Plato. Because Plato believed that the soul was repeatedly reincarnated, and he suspected that seven planetary spheres and then an eighth sphere of fixed stars surrounded the Earth. Hmm. And then the divine lay beyond the eighth sphere and set the universe in motion. Hmm. So then souls came from the planets, descended to Earth, united with bodies, and then tried to free themselves and reascend to the stars. Hmm. Yeah. They all got trapped down here. Yeah, there's a lot of believing that souls get, like, trapped incarnate in either human or mammalian form Hmm. or whatever. And then there's also something called Orphism, which was a popular mystery religion beginning in the 6th or 7th century BC. Followers studied the supposed writings of Orpheus, who was a legendary musical figure, and Orphics believed in a soul that could appear incarnate in human or mammalian form, like I was saying. And, of course, by leading a correct life and abstaining from meat, wine, and sex, a soul could go to Elysium, a paradise after death, whereas an evil soul would suffer punishments in hell. Uh. A correct life <laughs> yeah. is one without eating and sex? Right, yeah. No no wine, no sex, all the good things. So, But what's also interesting is in the Orphic way of thinking, neither Elysium or hell was eternal, and after a while the soul would be reborn into a new body. Huh. So it's not permanent. It's okay. not like fire and brimstone for the rest of eternity. It is only after passing through three good Orphic lives, whatever good means, that you can end this cycle of reincarnation. So again, it's like we all acknowledge that life on Earth kind of fucking sucks. Yeah, exactly. And we're all trying to like end the end the cycle. <laughs> yeah. I was gonna say one more thing about the the Orphic stuff is that the Orphic interest in death and the afterlife also influenced the Pythagorean Brotherhood which was another mystery society based in southern Italy. So the philosopher and mathematician Pythagoras believed that the soul could appear incarnate in a human or animal's body, which led him to espouse vegetarianism. This is a different theorem than I thought he had espoused. Well, that, I didn't know because I've only heard about it in the with in regard terms to of geometry, finding right? The hypotenuse. right? Right, but then yeah, like they this fraternity taught that the soul all you know originated in the sun and the stars and then found a body and blah blah blah. Wow. So then these followers ended up combining their religious teaching and theorizing with astronomy, music, and of course geometry. So that's amazing. All right. it's, it's a, yeah, it's, I've heard of those as also like maybe a triangle is one of those like sacred geometric patterns mm-hmm. or something. So yeah, yeah, I could see it. I could see it getting a little bit hippy dippy. Yeah, I, I, li- I just love the idea of these like secret religions that like could have been the big ones, but then like somehow turned into clubs. Well, yeah, I mean, it's sort of like when you're talking about secret societies, you're yeah. like, isn't this just a club? Yeah, just exactly. Hanging out. You guys <laughs> a country club. think and feel differently. Mm-hmm. Okay, so to round out our little reincarnation discussion, reincarnation in science, question mark? 
Mm. <laughs> now, of course, there's general skepticism, obviously, but <laughs> I did find the work of a man named Dr. Ian Stevenson, who was an academic psychiatrist, and he led the study of reincarnation in the United States until his death in 2007. So he founded the Division of Personality Studies under the University of Virginia's Psychiatry and Neurobehavioral Sciences Department, and this lab later became known as the Division of Perceptual Studies, and it focused on examining kids who remembered former lives, near-death experiences, apparitions and after-death communications, out-of-body experiences, and deathbed visions. And Stevenson often called reincarnation, quote, the survival of personality after death, which I like. Yeah, I like. Now, he saw the existence of past lives as a potential explanation for the differences in human condition. So he believed that past experiences plus genetics and the environment could help at least elucidate gender dysphoria, phobias and other unexplained personality traits. Interesting. Which is interesting because I don't know how much we've talked about on the show, but I'm seeing a lot more these days the concept of epigenetics, Mm -hmm. which is like, you know, that outside circumstances that like imprint on your DNA and change your actual DNA. So it kind of challenges this idea of nature V nurture. Mm -hmm. It's like a combination of the two. Yeah. But anyway, so Stevenson studied young children, usually between the ages of two and five who had these inexplicable phobias or detailed memories about a previous life. And he attempted to corroborate the facts that the child presented with the details of a deceased person's life. For example, one Lebanese boy not only knew where a deceased stranger tied his dog, but also that the man had been quarantined in his room. A fact that the boy's family later attributed to his pulmonary tuberculosis. Well, actually, you know what? This is a problem with the article because it says, a fact the family attributed to his pulmonary tuberculosis. So it was so like, like the a, guy's dise- tuberculosis? Right, like his disease-addled brain was coming up with these things and that's no, what the No, no. Family- I'm, I'm wondering if they're saying if it was the boy that had the tuberculosis or if it was the guy that he knew right, okay. about who had the tuberculosis. Yeah, it is a little confusing. Yeah, so whatever. But he did that a lot. <laughs> I mean, he studied 2,500 cases over the course of about four years and Mm. published technical books and shit and he claimed he merely wanted to suggest reincarnation was plausible not necessarily to prove it absolutely Mm -hmm. but his work was by and large rejected by the scientific community Mm. he himself never stated publicly that he had a personal belief in reincarnation but he did express his desire to communicate after death so like 40 years ago he bought a combination lock and set the code with a mnemonic device and he put the lock in a file cabinet in the division of perceptual studies and reportedly Mm. told colleagues that after his death he would attempt to pass the mnemonic device on but since his death in february 2007 the lock has not been opened interesting well maybe there's like a hundred year waiting period before you can go back to earth and start influencing things so maybe one day somebody's (laughs) gonna show up and be like i got the key i got it johnny mnemonic over here So there's a strong theme of cannibalism in this movie. Mm -hmm. Like Tom Hanks in the past is finding teeth of people who had been eaten by cannibals. In the future, they're like liquidating people who were manufactured to be slaves to feed the other slaves. Mm -hmm. And in the distant future, there's like roving bands of warrior people who are also cannibals. Right, right, right. And what, well, that actually brings me real quick to one thing that I love about like this movie. It's all about like cycles that we go in where it's like we have become from cannibals and gone back to cannibalism. And like there's stuff about the way the slave in the 1800s language is like his inability to speak English mm-hmm. is kind of mirrors the the super future super futures right. language it's like they you know it That's kind of a regression and and the cycles that we all go through in yeah. life there actually is evidence of cannibalism in the early history of hominids and one of the interesting things about it is that it's actually really unlikely that it was done for nutrition like comparing eating a person that's easy to get who's nearby versus actually going out and hunting a cow or a bison, humans just don't have much caloric value at all. 
Is that right? Like a horse, for example, would have provided around 200,000 calories, whereas a human could only give 32,000 calories. Hmm, Okay, okay. So it's just like worth it to go hunting. Right. I mean, we're smaller. Is that essentially what you're telling me? That is pretty much it. Like, but in ways that their evidence was like, look, we weren't doing it for nutrition. Right, right, right. Okay, I understand. So they think that the early cannibalism would have been socially driven, either in defending their territory or as a way of like resolving competition within a group. Mm Mm-hmm. They found the bones of adults, children, and teenagers that had teeth marks and other signs of cannibalism found deep inside these caves, but they were in large groups, Mm -hmm. which kind of indicates that the whole group of them were probably eaten all at once rather than as part of like a regular diet. Okay. Okay. And, you know, there are times where people have been driven to cannibalism. Like there's the story of the Donner Party, Mm -hmm. which is a fascinating but horrifying story about a large group of people who were traveling west in the 1800s and they got caught in a terrible winter. Yeah, you told I forget what I've brought it up a few times and been like, I want to look more into that in the the future. Why are we talking about it? We definitely talked about cannibalism, but. Yeah, that's it. The Donner Party is such a, like, it's just an iconic, just like part of your. Right, exactly. (laughs) But if, if you ever read the details about how it all went down it's so fucked up because it starts with like the parents deciding that the kids have to eat and so they're feeding them to their kids and then eventually they're joining in themselves and there's a few who survived and they were never the same and you know it's worth reading about but it is a dark dark read yeah and i'd write about it in the context of not the donner party but i mean like cannibalism i've also read about in, in the terms of you absorb that entities power right. yeah, whatever. you exactly. know like, like especially in with regard to like tribal warrior mm. kind of shit like and it you, kind of relates to that reincarnation concept yeah. a little bit of like you're literally eating the flesh of a person it's like they are becoming you and, right. and they're moving on in that way right 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 but it sounds like back in the early days of humanoids like we were eating each other for reasons other than simple survival mm-hmm. and like possibly even as a burial ritual which I thought was an interesting Okay, idea. okay, like interesting. Societies, early societies where it was like, and I eat him to make him live on. And I mean, I do wonder if it, at that time, if they, if the kind of tribalism that we experienced, if it had to do with like, you're from that group, right. or, you know, if it was like a territorial thing. Right, or... it seems like domination of some kind. Right, right. Ugh. But I, I never thought about it like this before, but cannibalism really is kind of the best example of the worst instinct that came along with our evolution. It's a selfish part of our survival abilities. And I feel like it's a good microcosm for the major question of humanity, which is, will we metaphorically eat each other until we can't survive anymore? Or will our acts of kindness carry us through to find a way to live on? Right, right. You either go the way of altruism or cannibalism and... Right. It's kind of like, it's such a great example of the bad parts of our evolution. Yeah, we definitely. are literally eating each other. Is that really what's going to promulgate the species? Yeah. Like we now know that, but you can imagine when you're much closer to your basic instincts and you're not yet trying to rise above them, your instinct is to eat this thing right. and you do it. Well, and then you, especially when you think about the cut, if it was like big done in big groups, there's, there's like a system. Like there's right. a, like they fucking industrialized right, it to some exactly. degree <laughs> as opposed to a, you know, a Jeffrey Dahmer who's like, right. I'm just a fucking creep who likes to eat people. Like, you know what we must have talked about it during was the Soylent Green episode. That's exactly what, why. Yeah. yeah, we were talking about people. <laughs> people eating, eating peeps. Soylent Green is people. <laughs> so it turns out a cloud atlas is a thing. Yeah. Oh, really? And, yeah, it's uh, it's a collection of images of clouds. <laughs> it's an atlas. <laughs> it's of an clouds? atlas of clouds. <laughs> okay. It's very straightforward. Yeah, it shows all the different types which occur in the atmosphere and their various names. They're broadly grouped into a classification scheme that 
it's kind of similar to the classification of plants or animals or whatever. But so I was going through this and I was like, well, I'm not going to like list off fucking names of class. It's been a long time. I remember in school, we'd be like, what kind of class? Yeah, cumulus, cirrus, cumulonimbus. Yeah, there you go. There's a lot going on. I, you know, it's been a while. But I was reading about, you know, one of the things that they determined on the cloud atlas. They, they determined a, the appearance of a cloud based on its dimensions, shape, structure, texture, luminance, and color. So I at least wanted to just focus on luminance for a tick Mm -hmm. if we can. Absolutely. So luminance in a cloud is determined by light, reflected, scattered, and transmitted by constituent particles. Mm -hmm. So this light mostly comes from the sun, moon, the stars, or the sky. And it may also come from the surface of the earth. So the luminance of a cloud is especially strong when there's ice fields on the ground uh, or snow fields or bodies of water that reflect sunlight or moonlight. That makes sense. Which already I was just sort of like, I didn't know where the luminance came from. Yeah. So it's from one of those things. So it's, it's similar with color, basically because like wavelengths of light are almost equally diffused by the clouds. Mm-hmm. So the color of a cloud really is dependent on the light source. So clouds that receive yeah. light from the sun are usually white or gray. But as the sun approaches the horizon, that's when the color changes. And so like the sky around it and the clouds around it start to change from like yellow to orange to red. And that's why the, the sunsets are so fucking beautiful. Beautiful sunsets. Yeah. yeah. So basically like the differences in color and luminance, they make it possible to obtain an idea of the relative altitudes of the clouds, which is interesting. Yeah. The parts of clouds that receive light mainly from the blue sky or bluish gray but when the illumination by the sun in the sky is weak the clouds tend to take the color of the surface below them so unfortunately for us haze tends to make clouds look yellow orange or red and may also like diminish or increase the luminance depending on how thick the haze is you mean us in la with our smog smoggy air that's exactly what i mean yeah yeah. Yeah, for us uh, Los Angelinos <laughs> because haze also like diminishes the contrast that even reveals the shape or structure or texture of the clouds. Yeah. So in other words, like no cloud atlas in LA, but yeah, I mean, I think that was just a very, a simple thing. Like I know so little about clouds and yet they're yeah. like such majestic creatures, but they, certainly like the are. color and luminance. I, I didn't know where that came from. Yeah. And I had heard that like pollution helps make sunsets look more beautiful and I didn't really know why. So that makes right. total sense. Such a bummer because yeah. our sunsets here are fucking rock. They're but. great. <laughs> <laughs> Come to LA for the sunset. <laughs> yeah. So one interesting plot line in this movie involves the establishment of a nuclear power plant. Mm-hmm. This is in the storyline in the 1970s. Yeah, well, like Halle Berry's a journalist and she's looking into some corruption. Or right, right. Because the oil companies, it turns out, wants to intentionally leave the nuclear power plant in an unsafe condition, oh, yeah. which would then cause a potentially dangerous meltdown, which would make public sentiment turn back to oil as the safe power alternative. And they even say in the movie, the future of oil is nuclear. Mm, okay. So something that's kind of always been interesting to me about nuclear power is that it probably is the best or one of the best and safest methods of generating power that we have, or at least in the 1970s when it was at its most controversial, mm-hmm. because now we have stuff like wind and solar panels that are getting way better. But even that stuff isn't nearly as efficient as a nuclear power plant would be. Right. And certainly not 30, 40 years ago when we were looking at that as the new technology. Definitely. I don't think it, I just feel like they get a bad rap because there's like some meltdowns sometimes. Well, that's the thing is like the problem is if something disastrous happens and there is a meltdown, the level of bad that can happen is so much higher and worse than almost any other method of power. Right. Like early nuclear power plants were not built to the insane safety standards that we have these days. And honestly, if we built a bunch of state of the art nuclear power plants as they would be built today... It would be so unlikely that any problems would happen. It actually would probably be one of the best solutions. 
But recently I was talking to a friend who was generally scared of pit bulls, the dog. Uh-huh. And I was trying to explain that they get a bad name and that they're actually great. <laughs> Sorry. They're- I was like, I had to specify between the dog and the rapper. Like- oh, yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> like, no. the dog. <laughs> Both of them <laughs> apply. Scary. No. So... I was trying to explain that Pitbull's the dog get super bad rap. A bad rap, but they're great loving dogs. And his response was like, basically, yeah, but in this unlikely scenario where it does lose its mind, a chihuahua can't fucking kill you. Okay. Yeah. So okay. I kind of think like it's hard to argue with that where it's like, okay, if a nuclear reactor melts down, it's way worse than if a solar panel explodes. Yes. I understand that. But but there's Nothing would ever get built if, well, if, if people you thought, thought about that. Ex- exactly. <laughs> so there have only ever been three meltdowns in the history of nuclear power, which has been running for a cumulative 17,000 reactor years, as they put it. Which is what? Which means like that's how many reactors have been running for that many years. Uh-huh, understood. So okay. it's like just a cumulative, like... If a one nuclear right. reactor was to run for 17,000 years, we've had three mistakes. Gotcha. Okay. It's a few bad apples. Right. <laughs> so the first one was Three Mile Island, which was contained within the core and never actually caused any contamination. Mm-hmm. But, and that was in the late 70s. Then there was Chernobyl, which was truly terrible because everything wound up getting set on fire in a way that shouldn't have happened mm-hmm. and shouldn't have been able to happen. And then that fire sent radiation high up into the sky, allowing it to spread further and for longer than any nuclear reactor meltdown reasonably should. Right. I mean, I, I honestly feel like a Chernobyl is why they have the bad rap. You know it, what I mean? It like, is. I mean, I don't know. Like, I don't know how generationally long it takes for, you know, some of the, the bad effects of something like that to take place. Well, I that's mean, the thing is that that one in particular lasted longer and was a much wider area than any nuclear meltdown reasonably should because of this weird situation where it wound up catching on fire and there were no fire fighting implements in the moment and so for days it just like was spewing radioactive material further up into the sky where it can be taken by winds and stuff like that and people didn't really live in the area though right it was pretty isolated people absolutely lived in the area in fact just to talk about that whole thing for a second it happened because of incredibly stupid human error where they wound up turning the power up and down and up and down usually for some tests this Mm -hmm. would be done but it like nobody was talking to each other so it happened too many times too quickly and that led to an accidental meltdown of the reactor like a terrible analogy would be like if somebody was told to go by and shake a can of soda once and they didn't know that five other people were told to go and shake that Uh same can of soda three times you know around that same time and then the soda exploded right sure and it killed 31 people eventually killed 56 people because of radiation poisoning and so there was this town called Priapat that had 43,000 people. Mm-hmm. And the whole town within a day was evacuated. And they were told that they could come back in a few days. So it's this crazy city to go explore, mm-hmm. which people do using hazmat suits and stuff like that, mm-hmm. documentarian crews, because they left the city like in the middle of use. Like they didn't right. pack anything like, up. Get the fuck they, out of here. And they were told that they would be able to return to that in a few days. So they really did leave everything. And then people never returned, right? Because You that can't return. Been, yes, oh still God. to this day. Like in certain areas, it's pretty safe to live in, but they still have like an area that they mandatorily, you're not allowed to stay in. But like really close to the plant itself is still really dangerous. That's fascinating. The Soviet Union actually attempted a cover-up when it originally happened, but 
a Swedish monitoring station found unusually high levels of wind-transported radioactivity, and the world demanded answers, and eventually the Soviets were like, this happened. Okay. Yeah, you can't really keep that under wraps that long. No. So that's number two, and by far the worst. And then the third was the Fukushima disaster in 2011 in Japan, which would have survived just the earthquake that happened and would have survived just the tsunami that happened, but didn't survive the earthquake followed by the tsunami. Oh, right, right, right. And the truth is, all three of these disasters were nuclear plants with early era safety constructions. Like, the the most modern is called, like, Mark III, and they have Mark IV, which is, like, the iteration of major design mm-hmm. of nuclear plants. Mm-hmm. If we were to build a new reactor today, it would have to be Mark IV. These reactors were all Mark II or Mark I. Mm-hmm. So it's, like, early era nuclear technology. But Fukushima happened, like, several years ago. Well, like this is what crazy. I was going to say, where imagine a world where we didn't get scared of nuclear power and actually kept building more plants. And made it better. When you have newer, better power plants, you would eventually shut down the old ones. But when no new ones are built, you keep running the old ones until uh, sometimes it's too late. Right. Okay. So if you were to build a new nuclear reactor today, it has safety standards and engineering in it that really makes it so that this could never happen. Right. But people said that about earlier designs and, right. and Fukushima did happen. But even so, it's like... Those are really old designs. Certainly after the Fukushima, I feel like nobody's like, yeah, nuclear power is where I'm at. I mean, I've been led to believe that every fish I eat is now radioactive. Right, but that's not true. Right, yeah. I mean, it probably is for a number of other reasons, not necessarily because of Fukushima. Right, exactly. But yeah, like that to me, it's the boogeyman of like, ooh. Well, there is like measurable radiation and then there's radiation that matters. Yeah. Because you're getting like multiple x-rays. I can't remember how many x-rays every time you get on a plane and fly up in the upper atmosphere. I mean, it's also kind of disingenuous for anybody to be like flipping their shit over radiation when we like fucking sleep with our phones under our pillow and like like it's in your pocket. Well, it's also (laughs) just like what level of radiation is in that fish? Is it an amount that's so little that it couldn't even build up in your system? Then who cares? Like the thing about radiation is you can measure it in such small doses that Mm -hmm. you can find a change But like I was saying, like, is that change of any significance in any way? Mm -hmm. No. We know that for sure. I just don't know. Right now, yeah. That's the thing was like, I'm trying to think of a good example. If 30% radiation would affect you and anything below that doesn't really matter, we're talking about 0.0001%. You know, like, I don't know how how to really put it into numbers. Yeah, okay. I mean, I, I think that's a fair enough thing because it's not that we that there's no radiation in them, but people make it seem like it's a fucking right. the three-eyed fish from right. The Simpsons or whatever. When, yeah, and they're saying here too, they're like, uh, the actual amount of radiation you would be exposed to from this fish would be roughly equal to the amount you would get from eating any salmon as a result of naturally occurring right. radios, radi radioisotopes radioisotopes yeah (laughs) people freak out because any measurable amount can allow a headline that says they're radioactive fish i also don't think it's our fault because they fucking they made it a huge goddamn deal when it happened right well it is a it is a huge (laughs) goddamn deal (laughs) and on that front it's like i think right now there are much better options on the horizon for power consumption that we should be investing in but in the 1970s going all in on nuclear may have been a great choice right right but also it might have been a choice that led to bigger disasters than i could imagine yeah you know just wind and solar man that's all i want do it (laughs) 
right. So a bunch of characters in Cloud Atlas have a comet-shaped birthmark on their bodies, which indicates that they're, you know... Reincarnated. Reincarnated from another character, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Birthmarks. Yeah. That's what I got to. Okay. So there are two main types of birthmarks. There are pigmented and vascular birthmarks. Now, pigmented birthmarks just happen when you have more pigment in one part of your skin. So it's estimated that between 3 and 10% of babies are born with something called a salmon patch. Hmm. which is flat and kind of pink or red like a salmon. And they usually fade away, but sometimes they don't. There's something called a cafe au lait spot, which is French for coffee with milk. Yeah, I was going to say. (laughs) I got my macchiato spot. So these are kind of light brown when they're on light skin. Obviously, they're darker when they're on dark skin. They can Mm -hmm. be big, they can be small, they can be oval-shaped, whatever. But these might fade as you get older, but they probably won't go away entirely. If you're born with a mole, it's considered a birthmark, Mm. but, you know, we like to call them beauty marks instead. Mm. (laughs) Right. So vascular birthmarks are caused by enlarged blood vessel formations, the most common of which are macular stains, hemangiomas, and port wine stains. So macular stains, if you you just Google macular stain, you'll see it, you know, it, yeah, it's a fucking birthmark on either a baby's face or a neck or whatever. Mm -hmm. If it's on your face, it's called an angel's kiss. Oh. If it's on the back of your neck, it's called a stork bite. Oh, <laughs> like, that's so sweet. Just anthropomorphizing yeah, our yeah. weird skin afflictions. <laughs> the port wine stain birthmarks are less common, and they often show up on the face and are wine or grape juice colored. Gorbachev. Gorbachev in his face. Right. Is. I've actually known a couple of people in life who have that. Yeah, and it's, I, yeah. It's fascinating to see. See, I haven't known anybody with that, but I, I had a boyfriend who had vitiligo, vitiligo. It's what Michael Jackson had when oh. like part of your skin loses pigment. Uh-huh. So, you know, not everybody has like a fucking surgery to right. go the whole night. But you go know all the way like, you start to lose it. It's interesting. Yeah. Anyway, so, okay. Hemangiomas, never heard of kind of fucking crazy. So there are two types of them. There's the kind that show up on top of your skin and then the type that show up deep inside your skin. Mm. So the ones on top are called strawberry hemangiomas and it's because they're bright red and they fucking look like a strawberry on like a baby's skin. It's Whoa. fucking ghastly. It's really? weird. Yeah, I never like, you can look, you can search right now. It's fucking weird. And then there's the deep hemangiomas that are bluish purple and make the skin swell and bulge. Also ghastly. And it's kind of like, do you remember the like body modification episode we did where it's like people get like air and shit blown up under their skin. Yeah, like the bageling or whatever. The bageling. It looks like that, but it's like blue and swelly and fucking weird. Oh my God. Yeah, I'm looking at this. This is interesting. That's the strawberry one? Yeah. Oh man, it's fucking, yeah, I've, never I've never seen, seen such a thing in my like life. like this. Now, for the first year, both types, both on top, like topical and underneath the skin, can get bigger and bigger, which obviously would scare the shit out of parents. But mm-hmm. most of them become flat by age 10 or earlier. They can, of course, leave a mark behind. But, I mean, you think about, like, depending on how puffy and, like, where they're located or whatever, it could really interfere with hearing, vision, breathing, yeah. whatever. They have the internal hemangiomas that can grow on your organs, like oh, your no. liver, your brain, your intestines. Sometimes it can be deadly. Most of the time it's not, apparently. Very difficult to detect, though some doctors have found success with ultrasounds. And apparently they're most common in Caucasian girls, so oh. glad I'm not a kid anymore. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, okay, so this is the most interesting thing to me this the whole concept of like myths and social stigmas and good luck and whatever the fuck that people associate with b- birthmarks mm-hmm. so a lot of societies once believed that a pregnant woman's behavior could cause birthmarks 
Because, of course. How I mean, in things? some cases, yeah, don't drink, smoke, or whatever. You can have red wine. But <laughs> some people believe that eating too many red foods causes strawberry marks. Others believed that strong, fearful emotions or overwhelming desires in a mother imprinted the marks. Huh. The, I guess the it, cross that yeah. women bear. Yeah. No. In Japan, many pregnant women were warned never to look at the fire lest their baby be born with a burn on its skin. Oh. And more recently, people thought that x-rays directed at a pregnant woman left marks on her baby i don't think you should be standing near an x-ray machine as a pregnant woman but it's not because of birthmarks right (laughs) no (laughs) yeah like in some eastern european countries they consider it good luck to touch someone with a birthmark in some cases people believe that the marks indicate an area where a person was injured in a previous life some interpretations are more insidious like people with birthmarks have been cast out of society because they've been thought to have the devil's mark on Mm. them in india one woman recently was ostracized from her peers because they thought her birthmark suggested she was possessed but what I love about my Google dives here is I stumbled upon it, a website called paranormal.lovetoknow.com. Oh, shit. Backslash psychic birthmarks. <laughs> That's so great. <laughs> so I learned about psychic marks. Uh-huh. Now, psychic marks are common birthmarks and moles, but of course, where they're located, their color and shape Ooh. may be what makes them psychic. You know, I was going to say, like, this is a lot like tea leaves reading and any kind of pattern finding that My we're trying God. to ascribe yeah. deep meaning to. I know. It's fucking, obs- I mean, and this is even more outrageous because you're like, this is just like a weird, like I've had, I was born with a mole on my forehead. I got removed. It's mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. The, just skin. It's, it's fucking weird cells, man. Now, according to paranormal.love to know or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. These moles or marks can have many causes. They can be past life trauma, special abilities, being possessed, or just a few. She even referenced Dr. Ian Stevenson's work with children that remember their past lives, that guy I talked about earlier, Mm -hmm. because apparently many of the kids that he talked to had markings or birthmarks that corresponded to their cause of death in a previous life. Okay, this is where it ventures into just like crazy town. Many people believe, (laughs) according to Sight, Uh many people believe children being born in the 1980s or been born since the 1980s, have special traits that make them the next level of human evolution. These children are known as indigo, crystal, or rainbow children. Oh boy. Now, other children known as star seeds are believed to have had incarnations on other planets. These people have many special abilities such as psychic vision, healing powers, et al. So we were aliens in past lives too? Yeah, or there's other kids. I mean, I'm I'm okay. like, is it the '80s kids? Is like, what is happened it... in the '80s that now we've reached this point? <laughs> I'm like, after the '80s, you mean the '90s? Like, right. what are we talking about? Is it the what's the new generation? The the after millennials? Yeah, the Zs or something. Uh, generation dickheads. Z. I don't fucking yeah. know. Whatever. <laughs> so okay, now okay, the yeah. Baby so, boom so... lit lits. <laughs> I just can't. No, okay. So again, like these kids with the special abilities, one of the things is, you know, not all of them, but some of them have special prominent birthmarks and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. There's something called maculomancy, which is the art of divination using birthmarks. Oh, boy. There's something, I don't know how you say that. There's moleomancy, which Mm. is the art of divination by moles. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Because like other birthmarks, moles determine the life path, luck, finances, and relationships of the person. I've heard that about your palm, too. Yeah, your palm, the your, lines. The lines on the palm. Lines on your hand, your face, your butt. Your... I don't know. <laughs> a hidden mole is the luckiest kind of mole, while the mixed color moles may be less fortuitous. <laughs> We're just coming up with stuff. Well, because mixed color, usually when a mole changes color and grows, it it's means malignant it's or malignant. Something. Yeah, yeah. Something's, something's up with it. Right. You don't want that shit. You're supposed to go to the doctor. So maybe they were onto something. But again, like this idea of, okay, not only even trying to find meaning in a mole, but mm-hmm. like determining where it's located. 
dislocated. Like, what the fuck? Okay, because... Making a mountain out of a mole? <laughs> Is that what you're telling Get me? Get out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you're making a mountain out of a forehead mole, mm. specifically the right side of your forehead, it okay. means that you have great intelligence and success in your education and career. Ooh. But if it's on the left side of your face, it means you're going to be extravagant and re- irresponsible. Okay. But if it's in the center of your forehead, you'll have many relationships. <laughs> like what? Like what does it have to do with anything? If it's on your neck, it means success in life with a great deal of responsibility. On your butt, means different things for men and women, but it could have to do with the lifestyle and love life of the person. On your back, you're open to new ideas. If you're on your leg, it means a lack of independence. However, according to reference.com, the child Chinese believe a birthmark on the inner thigh indicates a predisposition to wealth. <laughs> if it's heart-shaped, obviously a symbol of universal love. Uh-huh. If it's animal-shaped, depends on the animal, but if you you can <laughs> you can check out Animal Speak by Ted Andrews because it's an excellent reference. And then finally she talks about the sacred geometry patterns, which I was talking about before. Right, like with where the it's like and stuff. crystal links oh, fuck, hmm. just define sacred geometry as sacred universal patterns used in the design of everything in our reality. I'm like, so geometric patterns. Mm. There's no sacredness. <laughs> but anyway, a child with a sacred geometric pattern birthmark is believed to be from N angelic realms so if anybody has mm. like a polygon birthmark right. then you're a fucking angel <laughs> Rainbow I just love child. the idea that it's like geometry is also found in nature yeah did you know that yeah did you know that and so it must mean something I mean I don't know man I just fucking every time I just like want to hold my head in my hands when we have the t- conversations <laughs> yeah. because like at the same time that I'm becoming far less judgmental when it comes to the just like live and let live and mm-hmm. dude we're all trying to get through it and right. find your meaning or whatever but like don't give me this shit. I mean, here's a here's another example on the anecdotal tip. Mm-hmm. I went. I have a facialist who I love, mm. but I fucking went there and she she's talking to me about like products that I might like, and her way of determining whether or not a product is good for me or not is having me close my eyes, mm. put my hands out, her putting something in my hand, and if I drop the hit, like if it weighs my hand down, then like. I shouldn't be doing oh it. Oh my goodness. But if I don't, that you know what I'm like, like how much, you're putting me in this where she was like, come over here, put your hand up. And, ah, see, your hand didn't go up. I was like, you did something weird and to me. And if your hand real- is bigger than your face, you're, <laughs> you're a moron. Yeah, I'm like, there's no way this like topical cream is going right. to be like, oh. And if your ring finger's big, longer than your middle finger, you're, you're gay? Was, was that know. a thing? I mean, but meanwhile, like this is a person that I'm paying to like extract right. my face, and, right. then, and then she takes five minutes to do that. And I'm like, Fa- extract your face, face off. <laughs> no, <laughs> just my impurities. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, like I just again, like I, I sometimes the only time where I get belligerent about that not even belligerent where I get just kind of like I don't want to hear it is when there's the sort of holier than thou like I am educating you about something that you are not awakened to and now you need to buy this product (laughs) right that's mostly what it is like (laughs) as long as you think that you're an angel because you have a fucking triangle birthmark right that's more money in my pocket yeah exactly I don't know oh boy science We talked a long time ago in like the first 10 episodes of the show about implanting microchips under people's skin. Yeah. And I think we specifically talked about it as like near field communication chip that would allow you to unlock shit automatically. Correct. Right, right, right. I remember that. And I thought it was worth revisit because in the future in this movie, people seem to have various under the skin implants with all sorts of potential enhancements. Right. That they don't exactly explain the details of, but they're just kind of like, you see something under their skin and then they have like a special phone ability and you're it, like, I get it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's it's more just like indicating like future, future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. 
Well, I read about a new company that's called Three Square Market, where they're trying to get all of their employees microchipped, and people are pretty Ugh. much down with it. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh. So as an employee, you can choose, and I want to make that clear, this is not mandatory. Right, you can choose. To have a chip the size of a grain of rice injected between their thumb and index finger. And when that's done, anything that involves RFID technology, like swiping into the office building or paying for food in the cafeteria, it's done with a wave of the hand. Oh, oh like in that little like webby part. Yeah, exactly. Between, oh, yeah, and you would just oh, wave your hand. Fun. Mm-hmm. I don't want to get microchipped, but that's kind of fun. Right. Well, right now, more than 50 out of the 80 employees that are there are in. And I totally get why it makes sense at the start. Mm-hmm. Like... I used to work at ABC News and dealing with all the nonsense involving badges was so complicated and frustrating because they had three different buildings that I had to go to and I was changing between days and it was just like frustrating and ridiculous. But with any technology like this, you have to ask the other questions like, will the company start tracking how long you went to the bathroom for? Oh, okay. How long your lunch break was. It's other efficiency-minded insanity. Okay. See, that's funny. I hadn't even thought about that. I mm-hmm. was like so stuck on the principle of right. like allowing any company, any company anywhere mm-hmm. to implant something a chip in, bo- in your brain. And again, I think it's probably just like watching movie after movie mm-hmm. of these mm-hmm. kinds of things that seem weird. But Well, when the question is, Something like, but then they can track you wherever you go. Guess what? We You've already tracked. got a phone and it tracks you wherever you go. And this is not a GPS. This is just RFID. So the GPS that you have in your pocket is actually tracking you around. And theoretically, the Constitution and society and regulations are supposed to protect what you can do with that data right. more than it existing. Right. I mean, it's interesting because like the... <laughs> I just never had thought about implanting something inside you being tied to the issues that we're already having with like right. privacy and surveillance. Mm-hmm. It's like it's the problems that are going to be there whether or not right. it's inside you. <laughs> and I can totally imagine that there are governments in this world who would be like, oh, definitely, we should microchip everybody in I this know, society. I know. I, it's also probably also because, you know, you microchip your fucking pet. Right. That there's like mm-hmm. a meme just mentally, You're I'm like, I am there. not going to microchip my, I am not mm-hmm. a dog that needs to be found. Right. exactly. And yet, you know, give it 20 years and people with 10 years. Well, I think we were talking about that with the movie The Sixth Day, where he goes to get his pet oh, yeah. cloned. Oh, yeah. And they're like, is pet cloning just like getting the world used to the idea of human cloning? And yeah, it's like, hmm, yeah. yeah. Maybe they're onto something. Is pet microchipping just the idea to getting your getting... fucking kid microchipped? Mm-hmm. Like, no more Amber Alerts, man. Exactly. Oh. <sighs> Well, one idea that I kind of liked for microchipping beyond just unlocking and paying for shit is a kind of artificial bioluminescence. Oh. Like if you had, could have like a natural flashlight that's embedded oh, in your hand. We've talked about bioluminescence Right. And we've also like, there are other ideas about like VR headsets where if it has cameras on the outside that can zoom in on stuff, mm-hmm. if you have terrible vision, it could give, it allow you to see things that you otherwise would not be able to see. Mm-hmm. Or if you have good vision, it could give you superhuman vision mm-hmm. being able to read things that are really far away or notice little details and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Oh, okay. So that is not implanting it, but eventually, you know, all of these concepts of like turning ourselves into superhumans, mm-hmm. we already do it with hearing aids and our mm-hmm. phones and our bicycles mm-hmm. and you name it. Where does it end? Mm-hmm. And we're starting to enter under the skin area. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting, like to relate you know, bicycles with hearing aids, because I guess I've always assumed that hearing aid is to like level the playing field for someone who's hard of hearing. But when you think about it, a hearing aid gives you like extra fucking good hearing. Glasses give you 20-20. One person at that company that's being microchipped, he noted something that I thought was funny, which is, can I just get it in a ring form first? 
Like, I don't need yeah. it to be implanted, but can I just have a ring that I think does that's this? Honestly, what my issue is. Mm-hmm. I'm like, when it comes to concept, because yeah, I'm not going to be somebody that's like, no way, man. I right. don't participate in the system. It's like, motherfucker, if someone wanted to take me down, they would. They have all right. of my shit. Yep, yep. All of my porn searches. <laughs> like, they know. Yeah. So it's not about that or like pretending like I'm somehow separate from society, mm-hmm. but I, I truly think it's like the permanent I, nature. Yeah, it's the, it's the, the sacred temple, man. (laughs) Give me a fucking (laughs) ring. Also, like, is it truly aside from the fact that, yeah, it was, it sounded like you had three different buildings. Like, is it really that inconvenient to have an ID card? No, but like (laughs) you could say that about almost any convenience that we have where it's like, like I was talking about this with somebody when I was in Iceland and he was like, oh yeah, now we have these compressors where we can like pump up the tires when we're out in the field and stuff like that. And this guy was saying like, I used to think that those were for lazy people. And then I was like, you still drove a truck then, right? Mm-hmm. Would somebody else look at you and go, oh, trucks, those are for lazy people. Right, like, right, why right. not? What's wrong with the old horse and carriage right. gets you there just fine. So I always it's have always trouble a, like, with that question. It's always like what's necessary and what's not. Like right, is anything right. necessary to put in your body that doesn't already exist no but like you know and again like I think so much of the keeping your body as a temple is super wrapped up in religion and right. wrapped in like our you expectations use the word temple yeah exactly I mean I was being facetious <laughs> as fuck but, but like but the, we use that term right yeah because I don't think that's wrong space. necessarily. No, I don't though. think so either. I, I really don't because it really is it's like I, I feel like we constantly battle with this idea of like just because we can, should we? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I sometimes don't think just because you can, should you? But I also at least like can challenge in myself like the reasons why I'm averse to that. Yeah. But I also think that there's like more evidence on the side of like being a little skeptical of any company having your fucking yes. body yes. On. As, on their books in any <laughs> yeah, way. That's just weird. Yeah. Fucking weird. So did you have any favorite lines? I had a ton of favorite lines. Yeah, me too. I mean, what do we do? We just go well, back and forth? Or yeah, what? let's go back and forth. I'll, I'll, I'll start. I, I liked the line, I will not be subjected to criminal abuse. And part of why I like that line is that it's used in 2012 by somebody in a genuine way. The way it's kind of being used is he's like, it's the bloody incarceration act and I will not be subjected to criminal abuse. And like, he's just so out of his mind and doesn't know what he's saying. And then further in the future, a movie was made of his experience. And the only thing that carried on was this like dignified, I will not be subjected to criminal abuse. Oh yeah, famous last words, man. But then that changes the mind of the person who eventually becomes kind of like the future Jesus, which allows Mm -hmm. humanity to reach beyond our own planet and our own history and evolve into the future. But it was like a line that was said in frustration that was then misinterpreted and changed through the game of telephone. Which we experience all the time. It's like, it, it, I feel, I mean, I feel like it touches on both the idea of legacy in like a good way. Mm -hmm. It's like, I have a dream, you know, or whatever. Right, right. But then, yeah, how many times we fucking misinterpret history to like tell, you know, to say our own narrative. Exactly. Okay, my first one is truth is singular, its opposite is mistruths. Interesting. And I forget the context that they were talking about it, but you know, I mean, this movie is like so full of these kind of like, you know, I was, I was all for it at the time, but like, (laughs) it's sort of a like jerk yourself off. Like, am I right? It is. It is. (laughs) But I thought that was interesting. It is true. We Mm -hmm. refer to it the truth, the truth, but then you're telling mistruths. Right. So is there just one truth or is there many truths? That's a great point. Yeah. Knowledge is a mirror. And for the first time I could know myself. 
Yeah, I had that one as well. One that I really loved was how do we make hard choices after failing to before? After failing to make hard choices yeah, before? Like mm-hmm. after after doing the wrong thing, what makes us then suddenly have a change that makes us do the right thing? Hmm. And it's hard to pinpoint those things, but I think that it's largely by the effect of others that is similar where they've made a choice that was good and that can help you make your own choice. Well, and that kind of ties into my next line because my line is, if God created the world, how do we know what we can change? Right. Because there is this idea of like agency and control over your future and, you know, like kind of the, the existential question of just like, mm-hmm. why the fuck are we here? Right. You know, if it's both out of my control and yet so completely in my control, right. where do you find that balance? One line that I thought was great that just kind of illustrates for me something to think when you're faced with a hard choice is the quote, you have to do whatever it is that you can't not do. Like, Mm -hmm, it's an interesting mm -hmm. rephrasing and reframing of the issue that you're focused on right now. Mm -hmm. But it's like, what what can I not not do? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it can help you make that harder decision to make the better choice. Right. The whole idea of us being interconnected. My life exists far beyond the limitations of me. Right. Makes sense. And then I think also tied in, I'll just do a double one here is mm-hmm. no matter what you do, it will never amount to anything more than a single drop in a limitless ocean. What is an ocean but a multitude of drops? I know. And it's true. And as eye rolly as it is, I was bawling my eyes out when he said it. Oh, sorry. Well, I'm being a total dick about <laughs> No, it. no. I honestly, it is eye rolly, yeah. but I still like, this is a movie where at this point, I've seen it five or six times, when I sit down to it because I know what all these actors look like mm-hmm. and I know that the Cockney accent is coming mm-hmm. and I'm able to see the things in the beginning that I know I should be looking out for. Yeah. This movie just has me in the palm of its hands and I am crying yeah. through most of the ending. It's me being able to like really appreciate it, but all, like I... Do not respond to this kind of stuff very well. I understand. Part of why we like have been putting it off for so long isn't just because it's a really long movie yeah. that takes a while to watch, but because I was like, she's going to hate it. I fucking, she's gonna fucking and hate it. it. Again, it's just like it says far more about just like me and the person that I've become because it's like all of the, again, like the underlying concept is there, but yeah. I'm just like, fuck you. Well, one <laughs> last eye rolly line to throw at you that I also am like, but there's, if you really, if you let yourself not eye roll, oh, yeah. which is, but I am just a diner server. I was not genomed to alter reality. Right. Yeah. Which is like, none of us were, but yeah. yet we can. But you can. Here's one that has nothing to do with anything. The weaker meat and the strong do eat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I like that. The weaker that. meat and the strong do eat. But this is the one they even said in the trailer. They said it 400 times in the movie. Our lives are not our own. Mm-hmm. From womb to tomb, we are bound to others, mm-hmm. past and present. And by each crime and every kindness, we birth our future. Which that, it can be cheesy, but I don't feel as cheesy. And I feel like that's the thing that is the saving grace about this whole movie is just sort of the reminder that we're all living these crazy, sordid, mixed up lives and there's like a million different things that are supposed to make us feel separate from each other. And it doesn't have to be that heady, like fucking womb to tomb we're bound to. But it's like, but just the reality that like we are interconnected. Mm -hmm. We are alive in a blink of an eye on this random fucking planet Mm -hmm. in the middle of nowhere. And for us to act like there's anything more important than just like us existing right. is fucking insane and but that's also the complication of being human well right? in that way this movie is like attempting something so grandiose and so giant that when it comes up kind of short of that yeah i think it still is like 
a movie that's worth seeing, worth talking about. I think it's a work of art in all the ways that art is, where it's like controversial and some yeah. person gets this from it and some person gets that from it. But like, it is your reaction that is the only thing that really matters. And there's stuff to be taken from this. Tom Hanks said that it's the only movie that he's been in that he's seen more than twice and that it truly changed him forever. Yeah. And I can understand why, like, the closer you are to this movie, the more meaning you can find in it. Yeah. And it's just fascinating to me that he has been in so many movies, many of them incredibly meaningful, and this is the only one where he's like, that was really something special. Yeah. See it, allow yourself to be a little bit... <laughs> yeah, it's okay to, to, to be like, nah, that scene yeah. was a little bit over the top. But also then take the time, which I did, to fucking get over yourself for a few minutes. Which I think like... I think is so awesome. I, I think at the beginning of us doing this show, you would have been much more opposed to the movie at the outset. Yeah. And I think it's awesome that you were able to put those things aside and start to like, and appreciate it on the, all the levels that it can be appreciated on, which includes the part where it fucked up. Yeah, man. It's just not fucking cool anymore. If you're not 13, it's right. not cool to just like shit on stuff for no reason right. anymore. Like if you can't see things as being nuanced and also the fact that these motherfuckers worked really hard on this movie. That Who too. the fuck am I to be like, you didn't make it the way I would have yeah, made it. Yeah. Like, nah, I don't believe that prosthetic nose. Yeah, exactly. But I will stand by the fact where it's like, don't get mad at us for getting a little distracted. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Well, with that, please rate and review us on iTunes. You can find us at ohthatsathing.com and on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at It's a Joy Me on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Jeffrey Ekman, and you can find us here next week doing another Wachowski movie, The Matrix. The Matrix. The Matrix. <laughs> One of the best. Oh, my God. We're going to have a field day It's going to be great. Yeah. Bye. See ya.